Business Women Rock, episode 18. Ladies, it's time to rock. Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast, where we get down and dirty with the world's most incredible business women. Inspire your journey by listening to theirs. And now, here's your host, Katie Kremitzos. What's up, ladies? Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast. I am so excited that you're here today. This is such a great story today that you're going to hear. But before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to all of my listeners from all across the globe. Holy cow, I've been pretty amazed by the listenership from countries like China and Colombia and the UK, Canada, Mexico, I mean, all over. So thank you. Thank you, ladies, for listening in. You guys rock. And I want to give you guys a little bit of an update about what's going on with the Business Women Rock podcast. So in just six short weeks, we have pretty regularly been in the top 10, top 20 in iTunes, which has been awesome. And just recently, last week, a couple days ago, we um, we hit the trifecta. We were number one in business, number one in technology, and number one in education. You know, I really just want to tell you thank you. And every time I say this, I really mean it so deeply because the only reason that we're growing is because when you listen and you become totally impassioned by the stories that you hear and you share it with one other friend, one other businesswoman who you have a lot of respect for who you know would learn from these stories, who you know would just love this content. You share it. You tell them about it. They come on. They become listeners. They start to rate the show. They get involved. And that's how we're growing. And so I love that kind of growth. It's very organic. It means that this is great content and these women are awesome that we're highlighting and you are awesome for listening and sharing. So thank you so much. So let's get on with the show. My guest today is Dr. Catherine Havasi, and she is the founder of a company called Luminoso. She started the company back in 2010, and she now has a team of about 20, and Catherine's going to go into more of a detailed explanation of exactly what Luminoso is, because it is a little complex, but what you need to know is that this software and this technology that she has created comes from her years of studying at MIT and being a really, really scholarly academic and basically bringing that into the business world for practical application. She's wicked smart and very passionate about language and about being able to provide value in the marketplace using her technology. So turn up the volume. The interview starts now. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I'm so excited to tell your story and to to really get behind the scenes of your company, Luminoso, because it's such a different one. It's very, very technology-driven, very data-driven, and um, and it can look really confusing from the outside. So I'm really excited for you to be able to tell your story, not only about what it's all about, but um, and how it really works and how it benefits your clients and your companies, but really how you have gotten to where you are today and how that's yeah. really the driving force behind Luminoso. So let's start at the beginning. I know that you have a very, very interesting academic background. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience at MIT? Absolutely. So how I actually got started in this field is I've always been really interested in language. Language is awesome. It's uh, very interesting. 
it's like a window into how our brains work uh, and how people think has always been fascinating to me. And so I guess I had started doing research actually a really long time ago in the late 90s at the Media Lab in basically, well, what, what, do, what do we know that computers don't? What makes us so much easier to interact with than a computer because computers can be very frustrating. So I had started doing research at this area literally in the late 90s and it spawned this open project and the project has continued for quite some time and you know we are essentially related to that work. So it's just a continuation of stuff I've been doing and research I've been doing for a long time. But the question of you know what do we know that makes it so easy for us to communicate with each other and be able to talk so creatively and so passionately about such topics you know that's just an interesting question and i've always been very passionate about trying to figure it out so tell us a little bit about what you were doing at MIT like what kind of environment was there what did you like best about being able to study there because that's a very unique educational environment yeah definitely um the media lab is a really special place it's it's sort of we we like to joke that we are the people who are doing research that doesn't fit in any one particular area or any one particular department. You know, people at the Media Lab will be doing everything from neuroscience and mice work down to being able to study how uh, the social graph works or how people can better use tangible interfaces. So it's a very multidisciplinary department. Everybody there is sort of driven to understand both the long-term future of technology, but how the long-term future can affect today. So that's sort of the environment that we came from. And I think it's interesting because the Me Lab is sponsored by companies, about 80, 80 companies, and these companies you know, interact very, very heavily with the research. They're like, well, they're very, they're very visionary about, you know, how can we take the stuff that's being done here that's the future, and how can that influence the way we design products or think about things today? So it's very much that kind of space. But it's also very interesting for somebody who works in language and somebody who works in machine learning, because when I'm at other universities or something like that, there's this very machine learning people work on the same data sets all the time and it's very interesting to be able to actually work in an academic environment that still is influenced by things that are going on in the real world by data that is data people have to deal with every day. So I think that was very exciting and it's definitely a place where a lot of companies have formed. A lot of companies have come out of the Media Lab because of the melting pot of scientific ideas and, you know, really, really trying to look at things in a different light and, you know, real world problems. I think what's so unique and special about that is this idea that you're really utilizing an academic curiosity-based environment to come up with, like, real active things that you could could utilize out in the real world. And, you know, there are some academic spaces that aren't exactly like that. It's sort of research for the sake of research and not necessarily research and interest for the sake of real application. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the lab, and we do certain things that are, in my group, to things that were very researchy, is, you know, trying to take things that you think of as being much more, you know, long-term research and say, well, is there a piece of this that you can break off and take a look at now and, is there a piece of this that would that would be influential to someone here? You know, you have companies all the way from Mars Chocolate to Crayola to oil companies. And, you know, there's there's a wide variety of places where things could be applicable. So anything's possible. So you were spending all this time doing this research on language and, and um, you know, what was going on with language, what you could learn from language. How did this idea of Luminoso actually come about? So in the late 90s, search was brand new. You know, Google, Google was brand new. Uh, search was just a very different kind of field. And people would go to search engines and they would type in things like, my cat is sick. And 
the sort of art that we have when we sit down at Google and we know exactly how to search for what we're looking for hadn't really developed yet. And part of the reason for that and part of the reason for the reason people and computers don't communicate as well now, so people try to talk to Siri and it doesn't always go the way you want it to, is because when we communicate, we rely on this huge body of unspoken assumptions about the world, things that we know that are pop culture, things that we know, like people think puppies are cute, very simple things. And we know these things, but computers don't. And so our original idea was we need to be able to teach the computer all these things that we know uh, so that they can understand the world a little bit better, understand the context around queries, around text, around all kinds of different things. Uh, originally, it was for search. It turned out not to be as necessary for search as we thought it was back in 1999, um, but it became very necessary for other things. So we started using what would become known as crowdsourcing. This is the 90s, uh, where we called it the power of bored people on the Internet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So we didn't have nearly the size of a name. Um, and we just started asking people questions, and the computer asked people things, and people would tell it things like, you know, the sun is very hot, and people want to be respected, and coffee goes in mugs. And we set up this site, and people would eventually play games on the site, like things that looked a little bit like taboo and things like that, and it would just collect all this knowledge. And it just kept going for probably about seven years. Um, <laughs> and by that point in time, we had about... 500,000 pieces of information. And then a couple of things happened all at the same time. Um, one of which is that I do a lot of work in education. It's something that I'm also very passionate about. So uh, we had been doing educational outreach programs where we had local middle and high school kids would come to the colleges and they would get taught these classes by people who were college students there who were very passionate about things, and this is called the Splash Program. Now there are Splash Programs in many, many uh, cities around the country, and we were like, this is working so well here in Boston, we want to start it at other universities. And so we started trying to reach out, and it became clear very quickly that if we weren't an actual nonprofit and an actual company, this wasn't going to work. So around that point in time, I started my first company, which was Learning Unlimited, which was a nonprofit that was focused on starting these splash programs across the country. And that was very exciting. And in that way, I got a little bit of an idea of what it was like to start a company uh, and to run a business. And I was doing that while I was working on this research as well. So this was sort of doing both things at the same time. And the flip side of that was, at the same time, we started taking the knowledge that we had created and really building what is technically called a lexical resource, but it's pretty much a machine-readable dictionary out of it. So we build these big graphs out of that, that are like how people think about the world and put them out on the Internet for anybody to use who is building an AI system. And it's things like, oh, the sun is very, you know, there'd be cake, and cake is baked in an oven, and ovens are in the kitchen, and you probably want to eat cake on your birthday. It would just be this big graph. And lots of people would use it to do any number of different things. And, you know, over the years we've had a couple thousand scientific papers either use it as an influence or directly use the resource. And so we started running this large open source project, giving out this data. And it was very interesting because if we wanted to be able to work with it ourselves, we needed to learn how to do reasoning over very messy data. And text is very messy data, so it was a good coincidence. And so we started trying to figure out how we can get meaning and inference over consciousness, and I did that with one of my students who turned out to be my co-founder, Rob Spear. And once we had this working, it was like, well, there has to be some kind of industry application for this. So the thing that I would say most of all that's really kind of exciting here is 
if you have an idea, one of the first things you really should do is go out there and talk to people. And we went out and we talked to companies that had problems, varying types of problems, and we told them what we had, and we came up with an idea of how our technology could help them, and we saw how they reacted to it. And this became actually a theme in the way we work as a company. So we definitely went out there, we talked to everybody. Each time we would sort of refine the pitch and we would be like, what are the problems that you're experiencing? Would this actually help you? Are there people within your company who would buy something like this? And we did that for long enough until we came up with the ideas that eventually became Luminoso. So can you explain it kind of in very basic terms exactly what Luminoso does with this data collection and the the language uh, component that you're talking about? Absolutely. What we're doing is we're trying to take models of how people think about the world and use them to more deeply understand language. So if you and about five of your best friends uh, went and had a chocolate tasting party and you each ate a little bit of chocolate and you wrote down little notes, the notes that you wrote down would be very different. Uh, they would be talking about the same thing in different ways. So each of you have, everybody has different experiences. Everybody brings to evaluating a product, different ways of talking about what fundamentally turns out to be the same thing. And this is very true in consumer goods. And you can look at all these things and you can realize there are about five ways of saying smoky flavored that are all probably the same thing. But it would be very hard for a computer to do that because it's lacking the background knowledge that you have. So what we did is we built models that actually understand these things and can take in text uh, and start processing it. And so that also allows it to learn new words because that's actually how we learn new words. We learn new words from context. And so basically what you end up with is a system that can take sort of traditional text analytics out of this uncanny valley. So if you're a consumer goods company, you take product prototype information, so people talking about product prototypes, you upload it into the system, and then you can run a whole wide variety of metrics on everything from what drives emotional engagement with the product all the way down to things like how ergonomic the bottle design was. And you could do that using what's called qualitative data, meaning data that people just put into something like a survey open-end. If you probably took you know, surveys, you probably wonder what happens at the end if they say, do you have anything else for us? And you write some things in the box and you wonder if anyone ever reads it. Currently, no one reads it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But your software reads it. Exactly. We're writing the software that reads it. And if traditional technology software read it, it wouldn't know the difference between, you know, all the different ways you could say something smells musty. So if lots of people were saying, talking about a problem with a product that they're talking about in slightly different ways, it would never hit the company's radar. But we're able to bring all that together and, you know, bring sort of deeper understanding to text. You really are bringing um, and giving the practical application for companies out there who want to take mass amounts of data. Let's say they're doing surveys, they're collecting information about their market, about their clients, about their product, whatever it is, and they're able to put that data and that language into your software and it makes sense of it and the computer itself makes sense of it in a way that doesn't require a human to determine what box that should go in. Right, right. And, I mean, that helps in a lot of ways. It helps with market research because you can go through surveys better. It helps because you can go out there and do research without having to ask the questions ahead of time, without having to, like, limit which which areas you look into. And it's really interesting. We've gotten all kinds of results out of this, ranging from companies that have learned that the color of a men's toiletry product matters in how men engage with the product. If you ask them directly, they'll all tell you no, but if you let them talk, Uh, It comes out in the text, it comes out both in the way they talk and in the words that they use. And so you can prove that and then make 
of brightly colored men's toiletry product, which sells a lot more. So there's definite ROI there when you have to understand what people are actually saying sort of between the lines. That's very, very interesting. So you've developed this software. You've been talking to these companies. You finally get the idea that, okay, this is a viable product. This, you know, there's a space for this. People would pay for this. What did you actually go about doing to start the company and actually acquire clients? So we came from academia, which is very interesting in a lot of ways. So the first thing we started doing was we had all this techno- we had all this sort of open source technology, and the first thing we did was we said let's set up a consulting company where these companies that are that are media lab sponsors and other companies who are very interested in having us look at their data, you know, could come. We could use the open source technology, look at their data, write them a report, and and go from there. Except. Really rapidly, we learned that there were two big problems with this, one of which is that when you have software whose main advantage is using analytics is much faster than having people read things. But using a consulting company is never much faster than anything. There were long waiting periods to work with data, things like that, and we were like, we're losing some of our advantages here. People were very happy, but they wanted to use it themselves. And the other thing was, well, this happens a lot. When you spin technology out of a university, there is a very high chance that it has serious problems. And I think in biopharma, Bayer has estimated it's about 65 to 70%, or possibly I've heard figures that are higher, actually, of technology that's been done at the university that just doesn't turn out to be viable in the form that it, it goes out in. And we had that. Uh, the original algorithm that we were using didn't scale, wasn't stable, had problems. So those were the first two things we ran into, and we had to figure out how to overcome both of them. One of them was clearly that we wanted to become a product company, but to become a product company, we were going to need to fix the other problem. So we had to go back to the technology drawing board pretty early on. And it's sort of become part of company culture since then to continue to innovate on the science, uh, to try to figure out how to do things and, and to solve scientific problems in the sense that it's important for us to continue to, you know, make the system smarter. And that keeps us ahead of everybody else who's going to spin out of university in the technology space with a new product if we're still sort of at the cutting edge there. But in the beginning, we had to go back and figure out there are these big problems. What can we do to fix them? Now, how did you fund your company from the beginning? Because I know, especially in the Boston area, there's a lot of stuff for uh, startups. There's, you know, there's a lot of conversation and a lot of openness about being able to get investment capital. So what was your approach to being able to fund your company from the beginning? In the very, very beginning, we did two things, one of which is that we had this consulting company and we took the revenue from the consulting company and used it to fund the product company, which if you could do it is a great way to go, but it's sort of a, you know, a consequence of all the right factors being in all the right places. Originally, we took a little bit of our friends and family, very small friends and family around, but there was a lot of things we did in the Boston area. There's a lot of people we collaborated with, we traded with. Early on, we started working with an incubator that are called Mass Challenge, which excellent startup incubator in Boston. So my first company, LU, had gone through Mass Challenge, and it was the first sort of nonprofit social company, one well, of the first to go through Mass Challenge. And so we traded analytics for office space with them. We were able to, for example, do things like we can we can use your co-working space. We'll provide you with some analytics to help you deal with the huge influx of companies who are interested in working with your incubator. When you're bootstrapped, growth is always a problem because you're always behind the curve of need. You can hire people, 
based on revenue and the revenue with the revenue comes the work and you haven't hired the person yet and so it's always it's it's very hard in the sense that you're always working very hard in a given time you always get paid for things much later than you expect and it's a little bit stressful so Probably about a little over a year and a half ago, we actually raised an angel round, which we went through. We talked to VCs, we talked to angels, we talked to angel groups, and, you know, we ended up settling with not a large angel group, but a small angel group out of New York that we knew, and they've been great to work with. What kind of energy and resources go into your research and development? Because as a technology software, you're constantly having to stay ahead of the curve. I mean, how much time and energy really go into continually improving and evolving your product? So I think it, it honestly depends. It goes in cycles for us, right? So right now we are just coming off of developing a new piece of, of technology, and that was sort of in partnership with one of our big customers. And we'll, you know, depending, we're going to have an announcement about that pretty soon. It's going to be a very interesting and big thing. And so at that point in time. You know, we, we put resource for, resources towards development, but you always have to put resources towards actually bringing the product and the technology to market. When you have a really broad platform, and what I've been talking about is probably pretty clear, we have a really broad platform. One of the biggest lessons you need to learn is focus. <laughs> mm. You show up with a technology that can do everything from make inner document, like search inside a company smarter all the way to, you know, social media listening. You can't tackle all of that at once. It's not really possible. But, you know, in the beginning, there were, there were five of us, and we had this huge potential, and we needed to be able to sort of cut it down and say, okay, we can build this. We can do predictive analytics. We could do all these different things, but we're going to focus on making this consumer product dashboard because we have the connections here. And because we have a plan. And it meant leaving a lot of other potential things on the table. And it's really hard to do because you can look at something and you're like, oh, I could help with that. I could help make, we could help make recruiting smarter. We could help this large company have their own employees help find each other internally better and make connections internally rather than hiring consultants. We can do all these things. But you've got to just actually sit down and, and focus on the one thing that you want to do. So in that sense, that takes a lot of energy. No, I agree. And I think that's a great piece of advice because it's very, very true. In entrepreneurialism, I call it the bright, shiny object syndrome. You know, like (laughs) you get get this idea and then that leads to that idea. And then pretty soon you're 20 ideas away from what, you know, the real core competency of your business really is. Right. And I think that's that's something that's really important, especially with technology-driven companies because you end up with this technology that's actually very broad. And if you look at, like, where our core IP is, some of it is not even in natural language processing, but more in machine learning. And then if you even thought about that, you'd be able to expand things out very far. And there's a lot of places where your technology or what you're working on can make a difference. You just really have to pick it and get it. You're talking about data collection and you're talking about social media watching. Now, I had actually never really heard that before. So social media watching is actually collecting all the data that's in all of the comments and all of the everything that's coming onto social media, which is huge, by the way. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think I remember one of the concepts that that I had learned about a couple of years ago was really this idea of how great all this social media is and how you can really leverage it for your business. And if you search Twitter, I mean, you could see what people are talking about live, but there were actually very a few ways to be able to truly understand what was happening in real time on social media and collect that data and do something with it because there's just this overabundance of data. So can you talk a little bit about maybe your philosophy on what your role with social media data collecting really is and what your purpose is in being able to to have that data and do something with it? 
So we don't ever want to be the data collecting people. That's that's not exactly what we do. But what happens after you collect the data is where we want to be. So with social media, we want to be able to work with it in an intelligent fashion in real time. So something that goes beyond into just keywords, but is more into the conversation that's going on there and to understand it at a conversational level, which is something that you know we're working towards here. But I also think it's important to note that there are many other types of data streams besides Twitter and Facebook um, that are much more personalized to somebody's business. So you're probably part of or read blogs out there that are specialized to something, may it be 1920s fashion down to you know cars. And if you're a company who's interested in that kind of thing, going out there and finding these is a wonderful source of data. And so being able to process that is important as well. Because social media isn't necessarily very balanced, right? For your average company, um, most of their consumers are not going to be on social media. So you want to be able to make sure you get a balanced signal. For these companies who are hiring and using your software in order to make sense of this language that's happening, of this data that's out there, what's a larger implication? I think, it's, as I said, it's important to do balance. So it's important to bring in surveys. It's important to bring in focus groups. It's important to look at the forums. <laughs> find the body blog, find the traveler blog, and pull in that information as well. And some of it's very deep. I mean, we've even found people who have gotten real ROI off of YouTube comments, which is hilarious. So I think it's all about being smart about data, right? And for many brands and for something like a clothing brand, more people are tweeting about abstract mathematics than they are tweeting about your brand. And understanding that and understanding like if you are a clothing brand and you look at the blog, the inverse is probably true. So people need to learn a little bit more about data. And I think, you know, we're trying to do that. We, we've run some webinars in that series. Uh, but I think companies and brands are getting smarter. So what is your pricing model? How do you guys actually generate revenue? So we have two products, one of which is the dashboard that I talk about a lot. It's the software as a service. So we sell it in a seat-based way. And companies will buy one or several seats in the analytics platform. So we we charge by the uh, editing seat, not by the viewing seat. And they'll be able to do, if they are seat-based, in the seat-based plan, they'll be able to do as many projects as they want and upload pretty much up to a reasonable amount, you know, as much data as they want and process it. And we have people who pay monthly, and we have people who pay on a yearly plan. It depends what works for the company. Uh, the API is a whole different story. So with the API, you're sending data to us as you're getting back tagged data, uh, document correlations, you know, sentiment, something. Um, it depends what you're using it for. And that's all about volume, right? And for normal API usage, it's very much like a cell phone plan, right? It'll start calling you up when you've used it. It's by query, and it'll start calling you up when you've used, you know, almost all your queries for the month the same way it would if you've used all of your... I guess no one ever does that anymore, but, you know, your, your text messages for the month or whatever it used to be. It's very much like that. And, and just, but, to, just to kind of jump in here for a second, just to explain what an API is for those listening who may not know. Oh, absolutely. So an API is a type of often cloud-based software as a service where the input is part of a large process. So you, you have a computer program that sends our cloud a question, and then our cloud sends back an answer. So... Think about if you have a lot of people who have social media listening businesses are mostly their businesses all around getting the data and visualizing the results, and they use someone else's API to do the analytics. They'll send it out, and they'll be like, is this positive or negative? And then the API will send it back. So it's, it's, like, a, a question, it's like a box that can answer different questions. Stripe is an API that helps people process credit cards. 
transactions. So if you're a small business and you have a small business website, you can use this to be able to take in and process credit card payments on your website. So it's basically a way of outsourcing a little bit of the programming to somebody else. Got it. And it really helps with that integration. So two different services yeah. that you might need provided by two different companies, the API really helps with the integration of those those two things Absolutely. to talk. Got it. So can you describe to us what some of your day-to-day activities are like nowadays? So me, right now, my energy goes to different places as the company goes through different stages. And a lot of where I'm spending most of my time feels like it's a good indicator of where the company focuses. So recently, I've been spending a lot of time on growth and on hiring because right now, in the past year, we've been growing a lot, and in the next year, we will we will grow quite a bit, and we have four open positions right now, and so we've brought on three or four people uh, very recently. So a lot of my time is recruiting people, uh, talking to candidates, seeing if they'd be a good match for the team, that kind of stuff. Um, making sure I have the right connections right now. So it feels like lately I've been doing a lot of hiring, including hiring in charge to help us hire. As we're growing and thinking about culture fit, thinking about how we can change the management structure and keep everything together as we grow. It's It's been all about growth. And I'm just coming out of that right now. And we're thinking about, I'm spending a lot of time right now thinking about how to set up project management for large-scale projects. So for companies or customers who have complicated Projects, you know, how can we set that up? How can we make sure communication is great after we sell stuff? And I'm about to go into fundraising mode, and that will take up a bunch of my time. So it's, it's all about where I spend my time. It's all about sort of where the focus is. Um, you know, sometimes when we were building the sales team, it was a lot on setting up methodologies and processes and pipelines for sales, uh, thinking about what do we want, what is, what does our sales cycle look like, how does that work, and, you know, we'd set that up and then my energy would go somewhere else. So it's all about the stage of the business where I spend my time. I think that's a really important point in the sense that um, you don't think about this. You sort of think like, okay, when I'm starting my company, I'm wearing all these different hats, but I really love the version of, you know, I, this is a clear indicator on where the company's going, on where I'm spending my time. So if I'm spending my time doing data entry and updates and, you know, things that may not be the best use of my time as the strategist and leader of my company, perhaps that might be an indicator of why my company is where it is. So let's start working on some of those larger on top of the business type of things so that my company can get the message that that's where we're going. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's something that also investors, especially seed investors, are interested in. They want to know how they're going to want to know. And they asked me how you spend your time because, and I asked them afterwards why. And they're like, because it's an indication of where the company is focused right now. And if I personally had needed to be spending all my time in either technology or development, it would have been it would have been a worrying thing because, you know, you want to build a team that can that can stand alone without you being there, especially in the seed stage. And so that was something that people wanted to know. But it's definitely something that is important to understand where your focus goes uh, and will possibly be asked that. Do you have any books that have really connected with you that have really um, made an impact on how you run your company? Less so books, more so blogs and case studies. I've gone out there. So one of the things that I, I did in the beginning and one of the things that MIT tells you to do is go find companies that you love and you think these are companies that are run in interesting ways. These are companies that have had stories that could be similar to my story. And then go out and research them, research how they went through uh, the different transitions, research how they think inside, research you know, what's important to them. As we went through starting to build out the API, I mentioned Stripe earlier, we went and read uh, Stripe's 
published a, a blog where they talk a lot about how they run their business. We went and read that. And going through and understanding how companies like Echo Nest, which just got bought by Spotify the other day, I think, run their business, understand things. We did a lot of reading of case studies. So that was a big thing for me. You have a board of advisors. And, you know, not every company has a board of advisors. You have made sure to have a board of advisors. Can you talk about some of the the advantages and disadvantages or why you have chosen to have a board of, of advisors? So I think in some sense there was, so when we started out, the the original driver of having a board of advisors was that we are a technology company and we are making some pretty far out there AI claims. <laughs> and we wanted it as a way of saying, look, these people have checked this and, and we're, we're, we're not crazy, right? We, we actually have the vision and the idea, the, some, some concreteness behind the ideas that we have. And in the same sense, it, very quickly we realized that, you know, these people are great advisors to us and they really help you when you're stuck in a particular area to be able to talk through with somebody. And I think we added John Mida as a design advisor, which was very important to us because many companies that work in analytics and data don't really think about design as a principle or an importance. And we, as we bring people on stuff, we, you know, we had... Yuri, who's our designer, who's great, but the average person in the company doesn't have design experience and design thinking. So what you what we did with the Board of Advisors after that was sort of to bring people on who had experience doing things like maybe marketing or design that weren't focus areas for lots of people in the company. And it brought outside perspectives and outside voices, which are great, and I think that's a definite advantage. The only disadvantage is you really need to keep people up to date, <laughs> I would say. And this is true for groups of angels as well. Um, we were fortunate that the angels we work with, we have two points of contact. But the more people you get involved in an advisor or investor role, the more people, the more time you have to spend making sure everyone uh, understands what's going on and making sure you're communicating with everybody. And so... There's definitely that trade-off, but I'm very for having advisors. I think they're great. I think they definitely build out the team in ways that are important, and they help you look look at things in a way that's different than the way you'd normally look at them. Over all these years, have you had a particular story or a moment in time when it was just really, really low, and how did you get out of that? I mean, I think the, the one thing that is definitely true is that no matter how well things go for you, you get very burnt out. <laughs> and that's true for all founders. And I think being an academic really helped with that beforehand because that's true in academia and you just understand how to, how to go through it because you have to write paper deadlines and you have to go through these things and there's a lot of work. In some sense, it just doesn't stop and it definitely can feel like it's just piling on. And that's perhaps in some way more than within a low point. What I think is important to highlight is that there are definitely points in time where you need to take a break, no matter how much it feels like everything is coming down on your head and that you need to do 10 things at once by Monday. You need to take a break because it really helps you get perspective on things. I think I have, you know, taken some time off when I needed to a couple of times, like a day or two, uh, in the course of this company. I know one thinks entrepreneurs take breaks, but you, it really helps you get perspective. <laughs> Catherine, where does your passion come from? You know, why are you so passionate about this? Why? What? What gives you that drive to continue building out this company? Well, I think two things. I think this whole thing started from curiosity. To be honest, I've always been very interested in 
how the brain works then and why people are fascinating, right? And you, when you start working in market research, you also learn that too. Why does color drive the way men buy toiletry products? Why is it true that people think they're going to buy something, but if they aren't talking about it in concrete terms, they're not actually going to buy it? It's just that the brain is so interesting and we work in such interesting ways. And I've always been really fascinated by that. And both from the business side of what we do and the technology side of what we do, we're learning more about that all the time. And also, I've been working on this project in one form or another for a little over 15 years. <laughs> so you're a little attached, right? <laughs> I'm a little attached. And, you know, I think there's the, there's the open source project, which is ConceptNet, which is very different than Luminoso, the company. And in some sense, the attachment is almost to ConceptNet as well as Luminoso. But it's, it's definitely attachment, too. I want to see where this can go. I really want to wrap up this conversation by asking you, what do you see in the future for Luminoso? And what is your big vision for your company? So when you actually get down to it, we have a very big vision statement, um, which is that we want computers to understand text as well as they understand numbers and to be able to communicate that understanding in a way that is helpful to everybody involved. And I think there's many different aspects to that. We started out as a company with a dashboard. Now we have an API. There's so many different places that we could take the API, but again, focus. So for us right now, we're going to be building out different individual small products on top of the API. Uh, so we see ourselves as a platform where you can build, where we can build these products that help people deal with the continuing onslaught of information. And in the next year, there's going to be a lot of growth, which is going to be exciting for us. We're raising a Series A. Uh, we're growing. We're moving to a bigger office. It's just really exciting to watch. Catherine, I really, really want to thank you for taking your time out and uh, sharing your journey with us and giving us a lot more insight about, you know, the industry that you're in and the technology that you have. I think it's so interesting. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. Happy to do it. things that I love most about Catherine is the fact that it's such a perfect example of the fact that you can create a very successful business out of anything. It's really all about what your passion is and being able to fulfill a need in the marketplace and then doing that with excellence. And that's what Catherine and her team do. It's really a great example of that. So you can see all the show notes on bizwomenrock.com forward slash 18. That's the number one eight. And there you'll see a bunch of awesome, cool quotes that I got from this interview, a couple of takeaways that I thought were really poignant, and some links to Catherine's page so you can learn a little bit more about Luminoso. Thank you so much for coming by today. Really appreciate you being here, and I'll see you on the next episode. Keep on rocking. Mm-hmm.